Welcome to the sermon podcast of Christ Church Madison, a community coming home to Jesus and His Church. For more information about us, visit ChristChurchMadison.com. Today is uh, Trinity Sunday, which is why we have tried to have as many songs and prayers and all these things about the Trinity. The Trinity's, Trinity Sunday comes after Pentecost and after Ascension. Uh, and as a highlight of the year, and one of my favorite things about Trinity Sunday, our church commits to is holding a massive barn dance every Trinity Sunday. Um, and that's because Christian theologians have often talked about the divine life of God, of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, like a dance, because there are multiple persons moving in this beautiful motion of oneness. And we celebrate that and commemorate that through barn dances, which is the best. Um, but the tenor of this Trinity Sunday is very, very different uh, than last year. Instead of joy and dancing, it's one of sadness. And that's for two reasons. One, uh, we're still in the middle of a global pandemic. And so we were not allowed to have our dance. Uh, we had the, the string band booked uh, from Driftless. Uh, we were going to go back to Father Jen's amazing barn. And we can't do that, which is, which is sad. But most importantly... Um, Our country is being torn apart by the rage arising from the death of George Floyd um, and persistent racial inequality and injustice. First, I want to say that I come to this conversation with utter humility and vulnerability. I cannot and will not for a second posture myself as someone who has deep roots or is deeply conversant Uh, in racial reconciliation conversations, I'm just not. I know how to speak woke like a good millennial if I have to. I know how to posture myself if I feel like I need to on social media or in a room with people. Um, But I think you all need to see me lay my pride down. I have been at a loss to know what to do. And I've talked to many of you who feel the same way. I've been at a loss to know what the right things are to say. I felt embarrassment as a white man Uh, with my hands free and my tongue tied. But the topic of race and the urgency of addressing it has been thrust upon us all, whether you like it or not. And that is a gift. That is not a distraction. That is a gift. It's a blessing that this conversation is being thrust upon us. We've talked about race before in our church, but this is being ripped open in a new way across our nation and for our church. And I pray that our church will be able to receive this Um, and be able to enter into this dialogue and justice issue in a way that will endure beyond this season. So what do we do? How do we respond uh, in a time like this? I've had the privilege of meeting in a a pastor's small group with several African-American leaders in the city for a couple months, and I have learned a lot from them. And when you ask them, hey, what can we do? What should we do? One of the consistent things you'll hear them say is place a greater emphasis on the long game than the short game. So they'll tell you it's easy to tweet against racism. It's much harder to build meaningful, constructive relationships with people different than you in a different part of town. It's easy to march. It's harder to be a part of long-term systemic change. So personally, I'm on this journey of starting to learn more, to listen, to build relationships, And that's what I want to call our church to as well as a community. Um, There are churches and communities in the city that we're starting to build partnerships, but that we want to grow in our 
partnership with and be more involved with what they're doing in the city. There are organizations I would love our church to help fund. There are issues that we want to educate ourselves more deeply on. So this is the beginning of a process. But this morning, we're going to begin, before we do anything else, by turning to the Word of God for food and light and conviction and authority. Do you remember two or three months ago, I remember it vividly, I was going to preach on the end of the Sermon on the Mount, and then all of a sudden, coronavirus swept our nation, and we weren't allowed to meet. And literally, our country stopped. It shut down. And I remember being so overwhelmed by knowing what to say, first of all, as a preacher, but second of all, what we all would say as a church or how do we act in this time as Christians. But when we opened up the scriptures, God gifted us that beautiful story of Israel drinking water from the rock in the middle of a desert. And I was filled with this deep conviction that comes from the word of God, confidence, All the crises of history kind of came up into my imagination before me. And Jesus stood above them all like the bright morning star. And my heart was enlarged by the word of God. My my hands were strengthened. My tongue was sharpened. Maybe they were for you too. God gifted us that story, the water from the rock over the past few months. And here we are again, facing another crisis, which honestly I think is deeper and more tragic. So we're going to turn to the scriptures just like we did before. This is what the church does. This is what she has always done. We need God's word so bad right now to slice through the fog of social media and our emotions and politics. And what I think the Lord has for us this morning in the scriptures is not an answer or a silver bullet to all the problems necessarily, but rather a biblical paradigm for us to know how to engage as the church. In short, these are two commitments that I want to give us, which the scriptures compel us to take as we think about what it means to be a follower of Christ right now in the midst of racial injustice and division. Um, Here they are. I'm going to give them to you up front. Two things that come from the scriptures that I think the Lord wants to give us. Number one, we hear the blood of Abel. We hear the blood of Abel. Number two, We turn to the blood of Christ. We hear the blood of Abel. We turn to the blood of Christ. This is a Bible fastball, but we need to hear it more than ever. So we're going to go over these two things, and then we're going to finish with two challenges that come out of these for us, two practical challenges. Let's start with hearing the blood of Abel. And if you have a Bible at home, would you turn with me to Genesis 4, verse 8? Grab my Bible real quick. This was our first Old Testament reading. Genesis 4, verse 8. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. And then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. Um, We were going to start it this week, but we're not anymore. We're going to start it next week. Next week, we're going to begin a two-summer sermon series in Genesis, which is a part of a six-summer sermon series on the Pentateuch, 
We'll talk more about that later. That's going to be epic. Um, but our brother Jesse Pruitt is going to be preaching on this passage in like five weeks and is going to dig into it because there's so much here. But I wanted to draw this passage out and the story out because it's one of the most significant stories in the Bible. This is the first record of human on human violence in history. And this bloodshed is a result of the fall in Genesis 3. It's inherited in a way from his parents, Adam and Eve. And as we'll see, this bloodshed would drip and stain the rest of biblical and our history. But did you notice what God said? That the blood of Abel, which pours into the ground, cries out. It has a voice. It has a message. And God hears its voice. The blood cries out that one of his image bearers has been slain. That the divine created dance, if you will, that we were created to be a part of has been disrupted. That precious life has been stolen. And after Cain and Abel, we see violence spiral out of control. Jesse will talk about this in his sermon, I'm sure. At first, it's brother against brother. It's Cain versus Abel. Pretty soon, it's family against family. And then it's kingdom against kingdom, clan against clan, and then eventually it's nation against nation. And thus violence, as you read the Bible, and division and prejudice become ensconced in human culture. So there was a way in which the single act of Abel's blood cried up from the ground. We see that here. But it also turns out into this generational cumulative chorus of voices of suffering and injustice and violence that cry up from the ground. In Jewish tradition, Abel is the, the first martyr, if you will, or the first person who suffers unjustly. And in the Hebrew Bible, the last, the last martyr is a guy named Zechariah, who was murdered by a wicked Israelite king. And all of them and everything in between rise to this large chorus that cries up from the, up from the ground to God himself. Now, turn with me to our gospel reading. In your Bible, you can flip to Luke 11, verse 47. Um, the context here, Jesus is battling with some stubborn religious leaders thousands of years after Cain and Abel. And it is fascinating what he says in terms of what we just talked about with Genesis 4. Some of this might be confusing and you might get lost at first, but hang with me and we'll unpack it. Luke 11, verse 47. Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed. So you are witnesses, and you consent to the deeds of your fathers, for they killed them, and you build their tombs. Therefore also the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some whom they will kill and persecute, so that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah who perished between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, it will be required of this generation. Another way to say that is this generation will be held responsible. Jesus says all the blood shed from the foundation of the world from Abel to Zechariah, the most recent person, is crying out, and that the people with whom Jesus is speaking would be held responsible. There is so much here that's really hard to understand. Uh, and that takes a lot of context and Bible work. 
but there are a few things that are really clear, and here's a couple of them. First, sin is generational. Did you notice that? The blood of injustice stains generations. Jesus is saying the blood of Abel matters somehow to these guys that he's talking to thousands of years later. And even more, all of it comes together become, to become greater than the sum of its parts. Abel's blood and Zachariah's blood and all those abused and mistreated in, in between join together in a chorus, which our Lord Jesus has clearly heard. He's in tune with it. But then also, Jesus is crystal clear when he says that these guys are somehow culpable. They will be held responsible. They will be charged for that blood somehow, even though they did not personally kill Abel or Zachariah. Now, it probably won't surprise you that as Jesus is saying this to these Pharisees, they did not take that well. Um, ironically, their reaction would be to try and kill Jesus, which they would eventually do. Um, but can't you imagine, try to empathize with them for a moment, them pushing back to Jesus? What are you talking about? I didn't kill Abel. I've never stoned a prophet in between the altar and the sanctuary. I've read about it, but I didn't do that. What Jesus makes clear is that they're culpable, not only because they have cupped their ears to the cry of the suffering of the poor and injustice, but also that they have actually perpetuated it in their own individual and generational ways. And there's a, a key to this is in verse 42 earlier in this chapter. It's a really famous and powerful verse where Jesus says in the same conversation, woe to you Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb. And that's basically saying like you do all the nice religious stuff and neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Jesus is fulfilling the voice uh, and the role of a Hebrew prophet here par excellence. The prophets were always sent by God in the Old Testament to call out people who were deaf or blind to injustice or immorality in their culture, in their city that they were kind of allowing to happen. It happened before Christ, Christ does it here, and it would happen after Christ in the Bible. This is a part of why God empowers his people to speak, is to call this stuff out. Listen to this extremely hard-hitting passage from James 5 in the same tradition. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidenced against you and will eat your flesh like fire. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters, listen to the language, the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. Brothers and sisters, right now there is a voice crying out. Blood has been shed, the ground opened up to receive it, and there's a scream that has become louder than a global pandemic and an economic fallout. And I hope you can see how this crying out is generational. It is about George Floyd in that video, but not just, right? Just as the suffering of the people of Israel and Egypt in slavery for hundreds of years reached the ears of God, remember how 
That's how God begins the whole Exodus when he's saying, I've heard their cry, I've seen their suffering. So the generational suffering of black Americans are collectively crying out. And the historical sum is greater than the parts. Yes, this racism is interpersonal, but it is also systemic. Yes, sometimes it is the result of intentional, conscious hate crimes, but it's also often perpetuated without us even knowing it. Yes, if you're white like me, you might wanna push back and just be like, I'm not racist, wait a second, this is not my thing. But when we do that, we aren't just going against realities that still absolutely exist in our culture, we are also misunderstanding how generational sin Biblical generational sin works. Jesus took all of the persecution of the prophets. This is fascinating. All the violence of Israel's history, like a debt that still needed to be answered, and he set it on the Pharisee's desk. And right now, that is happening to our nation with racism. Our collective whole. This is still a thing. If the last two weeks have proved nothing else, it's that this is still a gaping wound and injustice in American culture. So how would the scriptures exhort us to respond? First, we hear the blood of Abel. We listen. We uncover our ears to it. This has always been the charge of the prophets. You're deaf. You're not listening. Open up. One of my favorite lines of all Shakespeare, and I don't know a ton, so I guess that's not a good thing to say, but one of my favorite lines from Shakespeare is from King Lear. When Lear, who is this king who's been sheltered from the suffering of others his whole life, he's been kind of in his palace or whatever, at the end of his life is having this come to Jesus moment where he's starting to realize what other people suffer in his kingdom. And he says these absolutely piercingly beautiful words. Poor naked wretches, wheresoever you are, that bide the pelting of this pitiless storm. How shall your houseless heads and unfed sides, your looped and windowed raggedness, defend you from seasons such as these? He's realizing what these people are going going through, and then he says, oh, I have taken too little care of this. And then he turns and almost says to the crowd, expose thyself to feel what wretches feel and make the heavens more just. Expose thyself to feel what wretches feel and make the heavens more just. Jesus was so in tune with the suffering of others. It's like one of the main things we love about him, right? He allowed himself to be moved by what he saw and he exposed himself to the suffering of others. Indeed, the incarnation of Christ is nothing less than God willingly leaving his eternal throne to feel what wretches feel, to bide the pelting of our pitiless storm. Christ himself entered in. And Jesus calls Jesus' people to do the same. Expose thyself to feel what wretches feel. Open up your ears and hear the blood of Abel. I think before we do anything else, it it just begins with listening. begins with hearing it, allowing it to enter into our hearts and affect us. 
I was listening to a black pastor in town this week that I really respect. And he was talking about how a white woman was talking to him about how part of white privilege is that we get the opportunity to decide whether or not race is a thing or not for us. Um, you know, for many of us who are white, we have the choice to care or not to care. And regardless of whether we do or not, our life doesn't change that much. Um, but it's not that way in the black community for whom race is thrust on them from birth. And as I heard that, I was like, oh my gosh, that is so true. That got me. But then what got me more was the black pastor's response to the white woman who said that. And he basically said, no, that is the lie of white privilege. Mm -hmm. That you get the choice to care or not to care. Mm -hmm. And then he pointed out Matthew 25, where Jesus talks about judgment pertaining to the ways in which we have either ignored or served the least of these in our world. Ooh. So he says, the reckoning will call into account the openness of our ears to the least of these. So sure, you can shut your ears, but that will be called into account on the last day. So that's the first paradigm I want to give our church from the scriptures. This is what Jesus would call us to, is to hear the blood of Abel, to open ourselves to the suffering of others that is being cried out right now. Now, what happens when we hear the blood of Abel? That's the next question maybe you're asking right now as you're thinking. What do we do when the cry gets in us and it moves us and it starts to surge in us like it does in Jesus? Well, first let's ask, how does God respond to the blood of Abel? Because it's really clear that he hears it all the way from the very beginning, right? His first response is in Genesis. And he responds, in order to curtail the destructive spread of violence and bloodshed, it so repulses God that he sends the flood. That's how serious this is of an issue to God. And though it was just for him to do so, we can thank God that he's promised never to do that again, even though we have continued to be violent and reckless. God's answer to the blood of Abel is the blood of Christ. Amen? God's answer to the blood of Abel is the blood of Jesus himself, is God's blood. God so loved the world, this world filled with bloodshed and racism and violence, he loved it so much that he sent his son who incarnated himself as a poor man in the midst of an oppressed culture. And he was so moved by the plight of people whom he saw as harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd that he went and he laid down his life for the sheep. And he suffered under Pontius Pilate. He suffocated and gave up his last breath and he was unarmed and it was unjust. but it was not defeat. What looked like foolishness and weakness to the world was indeed, as the scriptures tell us, nothing else, nothing short of the wisdom and the power of God. He did that, he laid down his life, as Ephesians tells us, so that the dividing walls that separate humanity could be torn down in the flesh of Jesus on the cross, so that we could all be unified in the spirit to overcome violence and racism. He did it so that by dying in our place, he could forgive us for all the ways that we have implicitly or explicitly contributed to these issues in our culture. He did it so that by taking on our suffering himself, not only could he empathize with us, but he could give us his life and heal us when we've been wounded in the midst of all this. He did it so that he could offer us an example of what it looks like to contend for justice 
and to not neglect the love of God and justice like the Pharisees had done. How can you not just marvel at the character of God? How can you not, how can we not worship him for his kindness and his severity, for his compassion and his love, for his suffering and his empathy? Isn't it astonishing that God himself is more deeply invested and involved in these issues than the wokest of the woke? Jesus is the greatest peacekeeper of all time, and he is the greatest activist at the same time. Isn't it astonishing that God himself chose to be killed unjustly at the hands of a political oppressive machine? And yet, he does so in a way that the Roman executioners who are involved in his crucifixion have the opportunity to be forgiven and find life in his name. Hallelujah. This is why our Hebrews reading says, in one of the most beautiful turns in all of Scripture, that the blood of Christ speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. The cross is Abel in reverse. Amen. So when we hear the blood of Abel, we turn to the blood of Christ. That's our first response. We don't respond with violence. We don't respond by vandalizing stores or starting social media wars. We don't cup our ears. We don't run away from these issues. We sprint to the blood of Jesus. And the blood of Christ shapes our response. It stirs us to action because we see the way that Jesus preached truth to power and was not afraid to challenge and die for what is right. It shapes how we think about the situation, right? How we just even engage in this. Because by the Holy Spirit, we too have the mind of Christ. We're humbled by his love and then we're armed with his forgiveness and his empathy and his compassion and his kingdom of God values. We turn to the blood of Jesus. So if you're black and you're filled with this surge of rage, this righteous anger within you, you turn to the blood of Jesus. If you're white and you're ashamed or you're at a loss or you have no idea what to do, you turn to the blood of Jesus. If you come from a different minority experience, and this is tapping into your own pain in a unique way that no one is protesting about, and you're dealing with that, you turn to the blood of Christ. Uh, This past week, I was at a prayer vigil with a bunch of African-American churches, and I heard black black pastor after black pastor get up to pray and to preach, and I heard the blood of Abel, loud and clear. And I was silent and I listened and moved me. But I also heard these pastors call all men and women to turn to the blood of Christ. I heard them pray that even those involved in George Floyd's death and all those being sucked into this national tragedy would come to meet our only hope, which is Jesus, and find healing in his blood. Isn't that amazing? So this isn't evangelical ease. It's not a white church cop out. This is Jesus. This is a Bible, Jesus, kingdom 101 thing. We hear the blood of Abel. The scriptures compel us to, and then we turn to the blood of Christ. Now, this is not even close to saying all the things that need to be said. Not even close. So if you're thinking, well, we should say this, and what about this? All of that's probably true. But this is just the beginning. That's what I said. I I think this is a beautiful paradigm that the scriptures give us 
in order to engage and enter in more fully in the long term into this process. Our call is to one, open ourselves up to the devaluation of black life in America. And number two, we are called always as a response. Our eyes are set on Jesus and we turn to him to shape our minds and our words and our actions. Now I wanna leave you with two challenges and I wish we could all be in the same room. Uh, Caitlin, our ministry director this morning was talking about how sad it is on a day like this that we can't feel each other in the same place. But two challenges nonetheless. First challenge, some of us will be tempted to turn to the blood of Christ without hearing the blood of Abel. The temptation will be to just turn to the blood of Jesus right now without actually stopping and listening to the blood of Abel. There is a lie out there that I want to free you from, which says that if you advocate and show solidarity with those fighting for black racial justice, it means you are endorsing vandalism or looting or insurrection or a particular political party. That's not true. That's just not true. If that keeps us from opening up our ears, that would be a tragedy. All the black leaders that I respect are advocating for peace and condemn the useless destruction of property. So don't let that keep you from entering into this. This is a Jesus thing. Be freed from all that. Just as an example, uh, later on, I will be attending and have invited any who want to join me a march today, which is led by African-American uh, pastoral leaders in the city. And it's going to include people from so many disparate Christian theological traditions and even different faith traditions. And we will not agree with all of them about all the things. And I know that can be scary to attend something like that because it might seem like we're diluting our faith or we're espousing like affiliated things that would contradict the historic Christian faith. But I just want to absolve you of that fear. This is us joining with many groups from many different places in our city and simply saying, this is a Jesus thing. And Christ compels us to fight for the dignity of every human being, no matter who it is and no matter who we're alongside. Don't let the devil or politicians or social media keep you from entering in to these issues, to being honest, to being convicted, to being called out. That's my first challenge. And you know what my second challenge is. It's the flip side. Some of you hear the blood of Abel loud and clear, but you're gonna be tempted to not turn to the blood of Christ as the answer. There's another lie out there kicking around in different echo chambers of social media, that this is not the time for peace or prayer or Christ-likeness, but that, to use a French Revolution analogy, it's a time for the guillotine. But let me remind you, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. That was the fruit of the Spirit when it was written thousands of years ago. That was the fruit of the Spirit two months ago. And it's still the fruit of the Spirit. And the Holy Spirit fills all of us the same, and he bears the same fruit regardless of your generation or political party or skin color. Amen? Amen. 
So don't be duped to think that Jesus isn't the answer. He is. Or that turning to him means uh, inaction or ignorance. He's our only hope and no other movement, no other hashtag can solve our problems. But Christ, his cross breaking down the dividing line, the Holy Spirit's power to unify, which is what we were, we were created to be filled with, nothing else can solve it. This doesn't mean you can't be actively involved in systems or politics. It just means that your activism is shaped and fueled by the blood of Jesus. And just to get really, really, really practical, and this is for all of us, regardless of where you are, remember that none of us are safe in our echo chambers right now, particularly on social media. Do not think that everything that you're getting is the whole truth or that you're not safe from massive confirmation bias. We have to watch the news, but social media right now is corrosive, even though it can be used for really good things. There's only one place in the world where you will get shot straight and you will not get any confirmation bias. And you know where that is? The Bible. The Word of God. <laughs> Our only hope as a church for unity is if we can center around the Word of God and not social media. Coronavirus was nuts. I, we had a video a couple weeks ago saying, like, please don't let this divide us. There were so many opportunities. Now, there's an even greater opportunity for us to be divided as a church. Who are at so many different emotional spaces all across our church. And guess what? In several more months, when we get to the fall and there's a presidential campaign, guess what every single politician is going to do? They're going to rip open coronavirus, and they're going to rip open this issue, and they're going to blame each other, and they're going to exacerbate it all again. So we've got a lot of unified, hard, intentional stuff to work through. And the only way we're gonna get there is if we are soaking ourselves together in the holy word of God. So just maybe decrease your social media intake and increase your Bible intake. Maybe just allot the same amount of time to it. Even that would be a win. 15 minutes on social media, it means you're reading the word for 15 minutes a day. Uh, a pastor in our diocese, Will Chester, wrote a beautiful blog post about how to interact healthily with social media. And I will be sending that to us uh, in our newsletter tomorrow. The scriptures have walked many generations. The Holy Spirit has empowered many generations. Jesus has been the bright and morning star for many generations to walk through political, racial, and physical crises. Over and over and over and over again. This is nothing new. We have everything we need in Jesus to be convicted, to be called out, to hear that prophetic word of the Lord, to wake up to injustices, to do it with grace and Christ-likeness, to offer salt and light to a world who desperately needs it. We hear the blood of Abel and we turn to the blood of Christ. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.